Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 6, 1 through 9. The full, the full explanation for this little series will come next week. The partial explanation is I, I've seen a lot of difficulty uh, in marriages and in families and in work situations over the last year. And I think it's my responsibility and my delight as a pastor to speak God's Word into those situations. And then the second quick explanation is that one of the, the greatest blessings in my life uh, was to marry into Christy Teal's family and to experience the transparent and Christ-centered leadership of her dad. And I uh, won't be speaking about it much this week, but in the coming weeks, I'd, I'd really love to see some of that kind of leadership really present more in our midst. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 6, 9. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, got to interrupt myself. I just read this passage. I doubt he remembers this. But one of the last times I preached on this passage, uh, Jack Riddle came up to me about 20 years ago uh, and uh, said, Ryan, you are just preaching at a really exceptional level right now. It's been amazing. And I, I almost wanted to die when he said it because I was preaching through Ephesians 5, 22 through uh, 29, and Christy and I were really struggling. And so hearing that the sermons were being used, even though we were struggling, was amazing. But what's even better is uh, in the last five years, uh, Christy has just even spoken to me about some of my sins, and God has been gracious uh, through brothers to really focus on those sins and to call me to repentance. And I went to Christy yesterday and said, I'm preaching on marriage. And she's like, oh, that'll be so good, honey. I can't wait to <laughs> hear from you. Whew. God can grow you. He can grow you. He can change you. He works in our lives. Hopefully it won't take you 20 years but uh, he can work in our lives. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is God's word. Father, would you come and help us by your Holy Spirit to simply read, preach, hear, listen, understand, delight in, and obey your word. Pray you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin... uh, short series this morning, probably four weeks, and it's a series I'm calling Picking Weeds. If I gave the sermon series a longer title, it would be Picking Weeds in the Garden of Everyday Life. Now, I know it's January, and no one in Louisville starts talking about gardening until the week after Derby, but if you've ever thought about gardening, you know that picking weeds is just as important as planting flowers. You can plant seeds, but if you don't pick the weeds out, your garden will definitely not reach its full potential, and it may even shrivel and die. And it's the same in our spiritual lives. Picking weeds is vital to cultivating our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's actually good that we think about this in January too, because in January we often think about New Year's resolutions, the things we are going to do. But we always, we don't always think enough about what we need to cut out. But if we're going to grow in what God has called us to as Christians, we will need to think about what He calls us to stop. You can't put on without putting off. You can't obey without repentance. So for the next few weeks, I want to pick weeds, trusting that as we do, Christ will show us more of Himself. 
My text for this series is Ephesians 5, uh, 22 through 6, 9, which we just read. And this section of scripture deals with daily life. It doesn't get more daily than Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 9. It's all about marriage, family, and work. It's about where we live. Of course, there are exceptions. Not everybody has a job. Not everybody has a child. Not everyone is married. But in the course of, this, of our lives, these three categories really catch a big chunk of where we live and move and have our being. Marriage is something some have had, some have, and others want. Family is something that has touched all of our lives, even if that touch is the touch of absence or toxicity. Work is something we all do, even if we don't get paid for it. Marriage, family, and work are where we live most of our daily lives. I was sitting with a group of Christians years ago, and I asked, how's your walk with God going? And every single person in that living room answered according to how their devotional life was going. Which is interesting, because the scriptures have far more to say about our daily lives than about a time we section off from those lives for our devotions. You should know before I begin that I'm not gonna go through these verses by verse by verse. We won't cover everything. I'm going to focus on the central applications in these verses. What do they call us to do? What are they calling for? What seed are they looking to grow into full flower? And then I want to ask, what weeds threaten the fruit these passages are calling us to? And then it's my hope that we will be resolved as individuals in a congregation to pluck them out. These verses I've just read call us to submission, love, honor, obedience, discipline, instruction, and doing the will of God from the heart, not as a man pleaser, but as men and women who always aim to please God. What weeds get in the way of that fruit? What, and of course by weeds I mean sins. What sins get in the way of that fruit? What needs to be done for those sins to be cut off, gouged out, plucked from the garden of our everyday lives? Well, let's jump in. As he deals with daily life, the Apostle Paul starts with marriage. In marriage, Paul primarily wants to cultivate two virtues, two virtues. In wives, he longs to see submission. In husbands, love. Now notice, because it gets radical already, he does not say, I want wives to be submissive and husbands to cultivate authority. For years, I made the mistake of thinking my wife's, call, my wife's calling was to submit and my calling was to call her to submit. That's not always wrong, but it's wildly off the emphasis of the Spirit of God here in our text. Wives are called to submit and our husbands are called by God to cultivate a leadership unknown 
in the ancient or modern world. Leadership driven by sacrificial, I would die for you, love. So again, wives are called to submission, husbands to a particular kind of leadership, namely leadership marked by Christ-life, sacrificial, self-giving, dying to self, love. You can see this just by looking at the text. In verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then again in verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. There's no point pussyfooting around this word that offends our modern sensibilities. It means to be subject to, to obey. It's the same word that describes obedience to God in James 4, 7, and describes obedience to government in Romans 13, and describes obedience of slaves to masters in 1 Peter 2. It means real submission, bringing your will under the will of another, namely your husband. Of course, a wife is not merely a citizen of her husband's country or a slave in her husband's service. She's not to obey him as if he were God. The relationship is much more like a relationship between a king and a queen. Some of you have known and profited from the ministry of Joel Beakey. I love his preaching. And if you do, you know that he's constantly referring to his wife as his queen. That gets the idea right. A wife submission is the submission of a highly exalted being. Equal in humanity, equal in dignity, and subordinate in the role she has been called to in the family. We must not rub the rough edges off of this. The Spirit makes it clear that marriage is a hierarchical relationship and the wife is to be submissive to the head of her home, her husband. She is called to yield the leadership of her life to the man God has given to her. The man, on the other hand, is to lay down his life for the woman God has given to him. This too we see clearly in the text. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Ephesians 5.25. And then notice again in verses 28 and 30, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Many times, our modern sensibilities are shocked to hear that wives are called so starkly to submit. But we miss that the call to the husband will require every bit as much death to self, if not more. He is called to love, and not some misty, vague, modern notion of love. He is called to love her like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The way Christ gave himself for the church was to sacrifice his life, to embrace pain, to take another's burdens on himself. 
The self-sacrifice of Christ was an act of love that led Christ to have his hands and his feet pierced with nails and his brow pierced with thorns. The wrath of God was poured out onto his heart. He sacrificially took the pain and the wrath. He took everything required to deliver his bride from all her troubles by taking trouble on himself for her. Anyone who's got the idea that the Bible says wives submit and husbands sit in the man cave and yell, Vera, get me the chips, is vastly misguided about what's going on in the Word of God. The same pains, brothers, that we take to care for our own bodies, we are to take care for our own wives, body and soul. And we are to do this not out of stoic duty or begrudging commitment, but out of Christ-inspired love, care, and real concern for the woman God has given to us. And we're called to do this in marriage for a very specific reason. In marriage, God wants us to put his salvation on display. He wants to show off what he's done in saving people through our marriages. The world has made, was made to display God, and mountains display his majesty, and dogs display his loyalty. Marriage was meant to display the glory of God's salvation. The Apostle Paul tells us the meaning of marriage in verses 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. What Paul does here is he takes us back to Adam and Eve the original human relationship. And he says that because the original human relationship was not mother-child or father-son, but because the original human relationship was Adam and Eve, he says, therefore, because this is the original one, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and he will unite himself to his wife. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What he's saying here is that when a husband and a wife come together, at the end of the day, this union where she envelops him and he's enveloped by her, this union is the perfect picture of the union that a believer has with the Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly this is beyond a slave-master relationship or a citizen-government relationship. This is the tightest and most unifying of all human relationships. And in that unity, what's displayed is Jesus and his church. Jesus, the head of the church, Christ, who's come under that glorious and loving submission. That's what is being displayed in marriage. Wives are to submit to their husbands to display a picture of how the church submits to her Lord. Husbands are to sacrificially give themselves up to their wives to display a picture of how Jesus died for the sinners who make up the church. 
That's the garden God wants to grow. Each marriage is to be a hierarchical relationship between two equals united that displays the love of Christ the King and the church his bride. Now, if you've been around Emmanuel for a while, you know it's been my habit in January to tackle various cultural issues. And let me tell you, that is exactly what I'm doing this January, proactively. You see, in the midst of a culture confused about masculinity, femininity, manhood, womanhood, and marriage, we can do something more than tweet about the insanity of our culture. We can build homes where the strength of a masculine man is used to serve a feminine woman. And the skill and competence of a godly woman is used in service to her man. In those homes, there will be fruit. Transgenderism, gay marriage, they are all fruitless. They're all either all eggs with no seeds or all seeds with no eggs. But Christian marriage is a passionate, uniting, life-giving reality that brings new life into the world. New life into the arms of a sacrificial father and a submissive and sacrificial mother. Christian marriages aim to grow Christ-like kids in the midst of Christ-like love. In the midst of a culture confused about authority, Christian marriages aims to show that authority is not always abusive and that submission is not always oppressive. In the midst of a culture that is all about self-expression, Christian marriage is all about Christ-expression. Christian marriage is a picture of heaven on earth. But our marriages are not often heaven on earth. Can I get an amen? Some wives are, why did you give such a big amen? You know, like, or vice versa. So, when our marriages are not like heaven on earth, we have to ask, where are the weeds? Where are the weeds? We often pray and pray and pray and pray that different realities will become present in our marriages or our relationships or our church, but we never stop long enough to say, and what needs to go for that to get done? Where are the weeds? Well, like the Bible, I'll start with the wives. But if God gives me seven more days, I will be faithful to address the husbands. The first weed that sucks the life out of godly submissiveness is disrespect. The first weed that sucks the life out of godly submissiveness is disrespect. And if you're single and you're listening to these sermons, I'd say a couple of things to you. One, I'd say this to the married people. If we don't cultivate godly marriages, we're lying to the singles about the gospel. We're lying to them about where ultimate satisfaction is found in what we point to. And if you're single and say, how do I get ready for marriage? You cultivate the characters that make for a good marriage before you're ever married. I remember, I think it was Pastor Ben who said to me many years ago, discontented single people become discontented married people. 
first weed that sucks the life out of a godly submissiveness is disrespect. Notice how Paul summarizes this passage in verse 33. He says, however, this is the summary of the whole passage. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Ephesians 5.33. You would expect him to summarize the passage this way. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's what he's been saying. He doesn't do that. He summarizes husbands' love, wives' respect. The reason Paul summarizes the call on a wife's life as respect is because respect is key to submission. Respect is the attitude behind the action of submission. In the next passage, he'll call children to obey and honor. Honor is the attitude that drives obedience. Respect is the attitude that drives submission. Without respect, a wife may do what her husband asks, but she does it rolling her eyes, stomping off, calling her mother to tell her mother what the fool has asked her to do this time, texting the kids because she wants them to see the folly she has to put up with. This kind of disrespect is a weed that needs to be pulled out. The submission Christ desires is respect that comes from the heart. Sisters, men deeply long to be respected. And in any normal man, showing respect will put a spring in his step. But more importantly than a man wanting to be respected is the fact that God wants husbands to be deeply respected. They are to be respected for their work, their authority, their wisdom, their leadership, their protection and provision, and a wife is called to give them that respect. She gives it by speaking words of affirmation, by avoiding insulting him or demeaning him with her words or her tone. She avoids doing this to her face or to her friends. She is to respect him by discussing the issues of the home with a posture that says, I care about these issues. I have ideas too. I'm a queen in this relationship. I want to make my point, but I understand and delight in the fact that the final decision is yours. In a healthy marriage, a man will certainly want his wife's counsel. There are some areas of family management where I have learned my wife is almost always full of better ideas than me. And that's not just because she thinks she has better ideas than me. They actually are better than mine. But that does not change the fact that our discussion ought to be marked by a mutual respect for each other's humanity and a wife's special respect for her husband's authority. If you're having trouble respecting your husband, eyes ought to have gone up. If you're having trouble respecting your husband, it may indeed be because he's not very respectable. That's a problem. But it does not change God's call on your life to respect him and submit to him. In fact, the best chance you have to help your husband grow in respectability is to treat him with great respect. The gospel is the fact that when we get treated like we don't deserve, God moves us to be 
like we never thought we could be before. Let me give you two ways to grow in respecting your husband. The first is practical. The second, theological. Here's the practical one. If you've been around here, you've heard this story before, but I love it so much. James Montgomery Bois, the great preacher uh, who preached at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia until 2000, tells a story I've always loved about how he learned to honor his father. His father was a distant man and actually Bois throughout his life says he had no memory of ever having a meaningful conversation with his dad. Still, Boyce was determined to find the areas where his father was strong and to honor those. His father was a hard worker and a generous man, so he honored him for those things, even though it was probably that hard work that kept him from having a meaningful relationship with his son. Boyce chose to find whatever he could that was honorable in his dad and honor it. What is praiseworthy in your husband? What does he do well? What does he try to do well? What does he talk about? Do you listen respectfully? You should. It may very well put a song in his soul. If you can't find anything that's respectable, that may be more about you than him. The second is theological. Here's a theological help for respecting your husband. No man is actually worthy of your respect. There is enough sin in each man to embitter any woman. And any guy who's walking through life thinking he is inherently entitled to respect either doesn't understand the gospel or is as shallow as you can get in your understanding of the gospel. The motivation for a woman's respect is not ultimately grounded in her husband at all. Notice the text again. She is to submit to him and respect him as unto the Lord. It is not because of who he is in his character that you're to respect him, but the position Christ has given him. Christ gives men and women authority in government, in parenting, at work, in marriage. Each of these positions of authority are not earned. They are Christ's gift. Your husband has been given a little piece of Christ's own authority, and you are to honor that. If you cannot honor your husband's character, you can still honor Christ's decision to place him over you in the Lord. So your respect for your imperfect and sinful husband can be an expression of your love for your perfect Lord. You're telling me I should treat him like he doesn't deserve? Yeah, because that's the most gospel thing ever. To treat someone as they don't deserve is the very heart of the Christian gospel. The second weed we need to pluck out is the weed of being a submissive doormat. Many wives take the command to be submissive as a command that calls them to stand idly by while their husbands get away with murder. Not so. A while back, my wife was talking to two sisters, and these two biological sisters are both in their second marriages. Their first marriages were both marked by abuse. On top of that, they had grown up under a mother who let her husbands, she had had two, walk all over her. They concluded that though they loved their mother very much, and she was a committed Christian, in both of her relationships, she had been a doormat. 
Notice that the wife of Ephesians 5 is not a doormat. She is to submit to her husband as unto the Lord. Her ultimate allegiance is where? It's unto the Lord. Her ultimate submission is not to her husband. Why? Because Christ calls her to follow human, Christ's call to follow human leadership is never ultimate. When Peter denies the gospel in the book of Galatians, Paul does not say, I'm supposed to submit to my leaders. He rebukes Peter for Peter's denial of the gospel. When the uh, church in Acts is told that they have to stop preaching the the gospel by the government, the church says, if it's better for us to obey men rather than God, you decide. In other words, Christians understand, men and women, in and out of marriage, that our ultimate allegiance is never to a person. There is no human authority that can usurp the authority of Christ. And so every wife's ultimate authority at all times is to her Lord. Her submission to her husband must always be in him. When a husband calls his wife to lie, to steal, to cheat on the taxes, to watch a little porn with him, she must obey God rather than man. She must respectfully refuse A man has every right to make decisions about the budget, the schedule, that kind of thing. He'd be wise to get her advice, but no right to override the perfect moral law of God. And any Christian man who calls his wife to join him in disobedience ought to be ashamed. If a wife is called to obey Christ at all times, and she is, then that means she is called to obey his command to confront her brother when he is in sin. I guess I'll share a little bit about why these sermons are coming right now. There has been a lot of abuse of men towards women exposed even in circles that teach the theology and the view of marriage that we teach. Sadly, the response to that abuse is for people to abandon the convictions the Bible teaches. Oh, headship's being abused, get rid of headship. Oh, male leadership's being abused, get rid of male leadership. Wrong. The answer to one sin is not another sin. But I do fear that sometimes when we've taught on submission, that we haven't made it equally plain that that in no way indicates the tolerance of sin. It in no way makes a woman a doormat. It means that every woman is responsible to obey Matthew 18 that says if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And if a wife comes to her husband and tells him his fault, she's not being quarrelsome. She's not being unbiblical and submissive, unsubmissive. She's being submissive to her Lord. Wives, you must not sit back and be trampled on if your husband rules your home with sinful anger. If his household leadership is marked by outbursts of wrath towards the children, you must speak to him about it. If he rules the children with continual anger or indulges himself in a life of porn, it is not obedient to be his enabler. You must go and tell him his fault and hopefully win your brother. If you don't, you might suggest getting counseling from a trusted friend or pastor. If he is more interested in sinning than changing, then you should bring two or three witnesses and confront him again. 
If you feel that you're living with a man who would hurt you, if you ever do this, then I encourage you to reach out for help in a way that's discreet and safe. But please know the pastors and the congregation of Emmanuel Baptist Church do not want to enable the abuse of any woman suffering under the unimpressive man. We want to be a part of bringing justice, repentance, and healing to your home. We want to bring him to a place where he does not want you to be a doormat, but a wise, exalted queen who rules under him, but by his side. If you're shocked by the idea that a wife ought to confront her husband, let me give you a little history, a little text, and a little realism. Here's the history. In his book, Worldly Saints, Leland Riken tells, Worldly Saints, the Puritans as they really were, Leland Riken tells the story of a Puritan congregation who excommunicated a man for not having sexual relations with his wife. If you thought the Puritans were prudes, you'll have to reconsider. On top of showing how important and good they thought sex was, it also reminds us that they understood that a man's home is not his castle in which he can do whatever he wants. Now, if he sins against his wife continually and unrepentantly, he is to be held to account. His home is not a safe zone for sin. Historically, men have been held accountable by their congregations and their wives for their actions in the home, so don't be a doorman. If your husband persists in sin, speak to him about it respectfully in the Lord. Next, let me mention to you a text that may have come to your mind. Doesn't 1 Peter say that women are to be obedient even if the husbands are disobedient? Aren't they supposed to win them without a word? Yes, it does say that. But let me think about that with you. That verse cannot mean that a wife is called to follow her husband into disobedience. Since nothing could be clearer in the Bible, then we ought to obey Jesus above all things. And if you're a husband who's saying, listen, the way this verse applies to you is that you're not ever supposed to say anything about my sin, then the wife's answer gently would be, well, that would make you the disobedient man. It's the man characterized by disobedience. What that verse is speaking to is probably unbelieving men in marriage and definitely men who are habitually disobedient to the point where it's not worth it to keep talking to them, but it's worth it to just submit and love and give an example that will win them without a word. Little realism, and then I'll move on from this point. In bringing up, confronting your husband, bringing two or three, sometimes even going to the point of church discipline, I might over-legalize our marriages. So let me just stop back and say this. Marriage and family life is super messy. Super, super messy. And 99% of it doesn't rise to the level of church discipline. Okay? There's all kinds of times where I might be getting a little elevated with the kids and all it takes is a hand on the arm. Ryan. And sometimes I agree with Christy instantly. And sometimes I don't agree with Christy instantly. And sometimes I don't agree with Christy instantly and then I agree with Christy later. And all of that back and forth flux is pretty normal in family life. So we had a fight is not we need to talk to a pastor. Okay? Uh, we, had a, we had a rough day with the kids is not when do we start the discipline process. 
Family life is really, really tricky and hard and balanced and nuanced and back and forth and lots of repentance and lots of grace and we don't want to legalize the whole thing. That'd be a mess. Neither do we want to get a, a situation where wives think they need to endure abuse for years in the name of submission. Neither do we want to get a situation where Husbands think that no one can hold them accountable in their own homes in the name of headship. So where's the exact balance? Well, that's for the counseling room, for the pastoral office, for the conversations with be friends, but I'm trying to lay down the tracks in this time. Well, I'm out of time. So next time I'll have a little more for wives and a lot more for husbands. Let's pray. Father, we pray and ask you that we would dig up weeds. Maybe by sitting in our chair after the service and praying. Maybe by arranging to meet with a friend we need to confess to. Maybe by reaching out to a friend or pastor because we realize our marriage is in need of help. We're not getting anywhere. Things aren't growing. They just keep persisting in sin and difficulty. Lord, would you revive Emmanuel by pulling up weeds of sin in our homes where we live and letting righteousness abound? Lord God, would you help us never to soften the call to submission? And would you ever help us never to preach the call to submission in a way that justifies and enables rebellion? Lord, we pray that you would do this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.